It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Egg Gotham, and welcome to another episode of Opto Sessions, where we interview the top investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Today, we've got Paul Schultz on the show. Paul is the founder and editor of Schultz Research, a company that does research on banks, financial technology, and bank algorithms. He's had a long career in the equity research markets, spanning 27 years working on both the buy and sell sides covering Asian and emerging markets. He's also the author of five books, including The Money Metaverse, How Crypto is Reinventing Finance and Property. In this interview, we discuss the causes of the recent sell-off in Chinese equities and what the future may hold, the money metaverse, the problem of central banks, and the tokenization of all assets. Enjoy. Hi, Paul. Great to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Yeah, great. Thank you. Uh, here from Barcelona. Yeah, I was going to ask, so we, uh, we talked a bit just before the show started, but so you're, you're in Barcelona now because uh, Singapore cracked down a bit once COVID started happening. Yeah, that's right. I just am taking a little bit of a, a breather here in Barcelona and, you know, just getting out and about and spending Christmas here and then uh, likely heading back to Singapore. Yeah. And what's, what's it like in, um, in Spain? In Spain, uh, very hardcore uh, rules about masks on the inside, uh, but on the outside, no crackdown. You could, there's no masks, um, lots of crowds, but inside, very hardcore population is very willing and able to enforce that code no matter where you go. So it's, I think, a good policy all around. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, um, just got back from New York recently, and uh, they're, they're pretty strict there as well on the inside. Or People are pretty good at, you know, inside locations, putting a mask on and stuff, but outside, you don't need masks. And Barcelona just imposed a, you must show your vaccination, um, card anywhere you go to get inside anywhere. That's a new rule at yeah, Monday. Oh, wow. So if you're not uh, vaccinated, you won't be allowed into these places. Stay home. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, we've just had a stay at home order that comes in from Monday. Not actually, sorry, not stay at home. Work from home. Um, there's steadily increasing restrictions in, in London as well. Oh, yeah. Here we go. <laughs> um, but hopefully, you know, after... The, this new variant won't be as bad as what people think, but we won't know until we get more data. I just wanted to ask, is Singapore, because uh, we'll talk about, about it on the show, but um, is it becoming more of a, a crypto hub after the recent sort of crackdown by China on Bitcoin miners, etc.? Well, that's right. So, so I've been in Singapore about three years, and that's one of the reasons I moved from Hong Kong to Singapore was I could see that they were taking uh, the, the whole approach to blockchain very seriously. And so um, Singapore has been on top of this for, for at least four to five years. At Singapore, the, the MAS was one of the early adopters of blockchain technologies through this thing called Project Ubin. And so the Monetary Authority of Singapore has been on top of this like a cheap suit for many years and is actually 
working very closely with China on a lot of this. And there's quite a few uh, companies whose headquarters are now in Singapore. So like, for instance, Binance, you know, which has the largest market share in the world, yeah. is located in Singapore. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. That's right. And then um, like um, other of the crypto banks, uh, like Signum has its main hub, uh, along with Switzerland, also in Singapore. And so they're doing a lot of stuff in Singapore. So there's a lot of blockchain uh, startups. Uh, Singapore wants to be a big hub for the Far East for like, you know how there was like mm -hmm. uh, RMB centers for trade. Well, Singapore wants to be the e-currency trade center for Asia. Okay. So they're really open to adopting cryptocurrency, blockchain, et cetera. Absolutely. They're, they're ready, you know, ready, willing, and able. And they're working very closely with China sort of behind the scenes. But they're obviously having to navigate you know, this high wire act between you know, being an ally of America and a supporter of China. And so you know, Singapore yes. has been very public about being sort of the Switzerland of Asia. But I think it's going to be a, a, it's going to be a tricky high wire act going forward. Yeah. And why did China crack down so much on the, the other cryptocurrencies around? Is, that, is this all just a control thing? They want to have their own sort of cryptocurrencies? Yeah. So, so I, th I think, I think that there, there's a little bit of a history in, in, in like standing on one foot. I'm going to tell you. Um, I think two years ago, I think there was a lot of early discussion about allowing the, the, the e-currency was going to happen anyways. They, they weren't sure how it was going to happen, right? And so they were thinking about, do we run it along Alibaba's railroad tracks, right? So, so China's building out the first digital railroad system in the world, right? And so do we put it on like the Alibaba rail system? Do we put it on the Tencent's rail system? Tencent already had a blockchain system ready to go like on, on the next morning just to be switched on. And then I think essentially Beijing is bringing the power and the technology and some of the wealth back to Beijing. And so I think there's a little bit of a power thing. There's a control, a party control thing. And of course, Jack Ma behaved so badly in all of this. And he was insolent and, and disrespectful. And, you know, you can't do that, right? With any central bank. And so essentially what we have now is Beijing sort of taking the power and the technology back in its hands and saying, we are going to distribute this directly to the people uh, through the People's Bank of China. And uh, Tencent and Alibaba have been cut out. And that's the way it is now. That was not the way it was, say, 18 months ago. Um, this is a little bit of a, a, a stealthy, quiet nationalization of data in, in some ways. And it's very disappointing to people who were you know, hoping that Alibaba would be sort of a central, sort of a semi-private rail system, you know, uh, and, and it's just not happening. And so that's why you've seen like Alibaba's stock price get crushed because Beijing is taking power away from Hangzhou, away from Shenzhen, and back to Beijing. Okay. So a lot of this has is, is been related to cryptocurrencies then. This sort of takeover control of data and, and everything is, is related to things that these large companies were exploring. Oh, amen. I mean, and that was the whole point of, I mean, you know, there was immense wealth to be created and Alibaba and Tencent did a great job on all of this, but the crowning glory was going to be, right, the distribution of the cryptocurrency, the E, the, the E, C, N, Y, whatever they want to call it, yeah, yeah. through the, the, the nationwide system to, you know, a billion adults, right? And that is not happening anymore. And so like after this 
really quite substantial pullback in Chinese equities. Um, these mega companies going to recover after this, or, or have they fundamentally been changed? Um, I mean, I imagine even from a you know from the U.S. market looking at investing in Chinese equities has affected their decision because you know the government could take oh, like this sort of like control at any point. There's no sort of like um, safeguard against that. Well, that's right. I, I've been looking at China for you know 35 years, and you know what I see happening in front of my eyes is basically a generational uh, shift. Uh, for the first time, as long as I've been looking at China, which has been since 1992. And I see a movement of power and wealth and exchanges and data to be uh, brought back to the center. I think that uh, this is, has a permanent effect on the valuations of Tencent and Alibaba. I think Tencent has a better chance to survive really well in the new metaverse. We'll talk about that later. Yes. Yeah. But I think there's a permanent um, downward shift in the valuations, right? So, you know, uh, Alibaba used to be at like, you know, 11, 12 times, you know, 10, 11 times book. Now it's at like three or four times book. So it's come immensely. Yep. And so I'm not that confident that Alibaba is going to recover to its old valuations. Um, and so the price can move up in line with earnings, you know, and it's really unfortunate uh, because the top of Alibaba was, got too arrogant. It was, it was Icarus. They got too close to the sun and their wings melted. And this is mm. a, this is an eternal story in so many countries around the world, including China. Wow. It's interesting to get that sort of like insight into it. And I can see, yeah. So what we're saying is that it's fundamentally effective valuations. So maybe they are still good investments to a certain extent, but they're not going to be valued ever again in the same way as they are today now. Well, that's right. And then there's also the national security element that you have to throw on top of what's happening. And I think China made some decisions you know, in the People's Bank of China and in the, the state banks, basically saying, look, we can't you know, afford to have all this stuff running around on private sector rails. Uh, we need to protect yeah. uh, because this Cold War with America is permanent and lasting and deep and vicious, and it's going to go on for a long time. So we're going to have to really pull back to the center and watch things very closely. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that that is probably 40% of the story, but it's not, you know, it's not 70% of the story. It's a big chunk of the story. And if we, if we look over to the, um, to the West, just the just recent sort of movements in the markets in the U.S., well, the major indices, a lot of them have pulled back slightly, but um, it's more so the small caps, middle caps and stuff that have been really hit hard under the surface, the growth, growth stocks that a lot of you know, people are interested in. And do you have a sort of opinion on, on what the future is for, for US markets as well? Are we in the midst of a correction in, in a larger sort of bull market still? Or do you think this is going to be a messy market for next year? Yeah, I think the one thing to watch is uh, watch margin debt very carefully because that margin debt is really what's happening. There is a very vicious uh, margin unwind. And so, of course, as you know, if, if your stock goes down, you know, 25, 30%, you know, even if it goes down, you know, 20%, let's say, right? Yeah. You're automatically, you know, called up by your broker and say, hey, you better cough up some money right now on your account or we're going to start selling your stock. And then a lot of people just didn't have very much money. And so that they, that they borrowed a whole ton of money. Mm. And so there's been a, a forced liquidation by broker dealers, a lot of equity positions. 
And of course, what happens is that tends to, right, that will aggravate and become a downward spiral if you don't be careful because, you know, the, the lower it goes, the more you sell. Yeah. The lower it goes, the more you sell. And then people are just in desperate shape. So I think there was a hell of a lot of leverage. And, and we're talking about numbers. Um, I think we're seeing one of the biggest increases in 2021 in leverage we've ever seen in the history of stock markets, right? We've gone up from like 600 billion up to $1 trillion. So a $400 billion jump in leverage, wow. uh, which is, let's call it margin debt, um, up to $1 trillion during 2021. And I think that's you know, the Fed has been trying to talk down the markets, uh, but boy, oh boy, when you try to talk down markets and leverage that high, a lot of this leverage was in speculative positions with people who don't understand the pain of leverage when it unwinds, you know, people who are first time, you know, uh, users of credit to fund equities. And boy, I, you know, I've been, I've been around uh, like dozens of, I got third degree burns all over my body from, you know, being around dozens of bear markets. Over the decades, you know, in Asia, in Latin America, in Turkey, in Eastern Europe, Russia, <laughs> you know, all over the place. And, you know, boy, it's painful, man. And I think that there are these processes where I think we're right now at sort of a denial where, wow, that was a close one. I really have to dig myself out of this mess. What am I going to do? I got to go around. I got to borrow some money from people to cover my, you know, margin debt with my broker or, you know, I'm going to try again. You know, I, I still think we need to figure out how much of that margin debt needs to get burned off. I will tell you, I think we need to see about 30% of it burned off uh, before we get some stabilization. It's hard. I was looking at the numbers. They don't publish the numbers that quickly. Uh, the numbers, I think, are probably have not, we have not burned off that much. Uh, and so I think we've got to just watch those margin debt numbers. I want to watch those margin debt numbers come down to like $700 billion. Oh, wow. Okay. And then I'll be a little more excited. But there's a lot of pain out there of people who are stuck in positions. They can't get out. They probably want to get out. They are waiting for the market to bounce. And when you have that circumstance, markets don't bounce because everyone tries to get out as the market rises. Yeah, I got you. And especially with all these like mid caps and, and smaller caps. And just watch, you know, watch Robinhood. Robinhood is, is the precise manifestation of exactly what I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. so, so watch Robinhood stock. You know, it, it's been creamed and I just, I just don't see it recovering very well. We don't have any volume. We don't have any capitulation. We want to be seeing capitulation in huge volumes. And I just don't see it right now. I don't see it. Yeah. And do you think um, decisions on interest rates are affecting it as well? Oh, well, yeah, for sure. For sure. Because your discount rate as it goes up. I mean, markets are about cash, discounted cash flow. And, and, and the discount is going to be about 70% of the net present value. And the cash, your, your cash flows is going to be about... 25 or 30% of that value. So the discount rate is everything. Now, I think what's happening is the Fed is seeing all of this carnage and they're going, uh-oh, well, we didn't want it to be like that much of a pullback. Yeah. But, you know, like you said, you know, if, if you look at the overall markets like the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, you know, uh, Google and Microsoft and, and Amazon and all these other characters are holding up mm -hmm. pretty well. Apple. Apple, right, now are holding up pretty well. And so now my question is, and I've asked a lot of people, are the same people who are playing around in these small and mid-caps and have been creamed, the same ones who are playing around in the top like five or six stocks holding up the indices, 
most of the people I talk to would say no, that they haven't. And then some people will say, yeah, they're surely involved. And don't you always end up selling the winners to pay for the losers? And so we just have to watch that, watch that, that breadth of the market. The breadth of the market is narrowing. Yeah. And you have fewer and fewer stocks driving up indices. And that tends to be a bad sign. Yep. And how, so basically caution is, is the word to probably to bring into next year, potentially. Well, that's right. Especially sort of now, you know, you got, um, we're, we're heading into the end of the year. People could put on their blinders and say, oh, let's just enjoy the holidays and get drunk. And then we'll figure this out <laughs> in January. Yeah. I don't know what, I don't know what information you're going to get in January. That's different from what you're going to get now. I think the Fed is going to have to do a U-turn at some point, obviously, because there's so much damage out there uh, to the uh, market. You don't want to have like a, you don't want to start like a, a downward spiral, right? You don't want to start that. Yeah, yeah, I've got you. I believe the Fed will do a U-turn in the first quarter. Watch it. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, Paul, can you just give us a quick overview of of, of your background? Because you, I mean, you've been in financial industry for a long time, and uh, it's interesting to to hear where you've been. Yeah, so I started at the National Security Council at the White House, and then I pivoted into finance. I got my you know masters in, in international finance, and and then I, I ended up working with the Indonesian Ministry of Finance and the Central Bank doing some capital market reform stuff. Subsequently, I joined uh, CS First Boston, so Credit Suisse, uh, back in the early 90s and set up the research department in Hong Kong. And I've worked at Lehman Brothers. Uh, I've worked at uh, Bearings. I've worked at uh, Nomura after Nomura bought Lehman Brothers. And I spent two years at China Construction Bank uh, international broker dealer. Um, and I've been covering banks for many, many years. I ran all the banking research for the Far East. And in 2013, I wrote a book on fintech. And I thought, this is really important. You better pay attention. And my clients were like, why are you writing about this stuff? You're wasting everyone's time. There's no stocks to, to buy. So why are you telling, what, what am I supposed to do with this information? And there were some, and, and by the way, the banks are not going to be affected. And, and uh, you know, these guys are never going to make money. And you know, and, 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 and I feel like the, the exact same thing is happening with the, the Metaverse book I just finished uh, called The Money Metaverse. I feel it's exactly the same thing with this as I felt like when, it was, uh, when I wrote the book that was published in 2014 on fintech. You know, and, and, and I pivoted and I began covering all these fintech stocks. And my banking clients were like, all right, I guess I have to cover this, don't I? And I said, yeah, you need, I told all my clients, you need to have your tech guy and your banking guy in all their meetings together from now on, and don't let them have any separate meetings. And a lot of my clients followed that advice, and it worked out well. And now I feel the same reticence and, and feet dragging and hemming and hawing and, and um, lack of confidence and lack of you know, understanding is the same thing that's happening with this phenomenon that we're seeing in the last 12 months, which is kind of a, a clear articulation of the metaverse. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. So, yeah, I mean, that brings us to to your latest book, as you mentioned, The Money Metaverse. A term that, you know, well, metaverse uh, specifically is is misunderstood, I think, by quite a few people. So I thought we could potentially start uh, this talk about the metaverse, the money metaverse, and everything else. Uh, in your opinion, what is the metaverse? Because a lot of people, it's more than just virtual reality, online gaming. Uh, as people know it today, it's, it's, it's more than that, isn't it? Oh, for sure. It's, it's, a, it's a hundred times more than that. And so, you know, Web 1.0 is looking at the data. 
Web 2.0 is building uh, the data on, on websites, right? And now Web 3.0 is what I call, um, Web 2.0 is HTTP, right? The um, hypertext uh, protocol, HTTP, hypertext. Web 3.0 is hyperspace, HSTP. We're going from a two-dimensional world to a three-dimensional world. And that's the, the massive, massive fundamental difference. This is much more than just an extension of the two-dimensional world. This is the creation of a three-dimensional world where you know, finance meets um, digitization of assets, meets gaming, meets uh, lifestyle. Uh, and all four of those are coming together to create something that people better pay attention to what's going on here. We better pay attention because we have a, only a tiny amount of the world has been digitized. Right. And so we're talking about trillions of dollars, potentially, of, of property uh, buildings, uh, logistical sites and residential, commercial, agriculture, all being digitized and placed onto a metaverse. We're looking at the ability of almost any financial product to be traded on the metaverse. And so and by the way, that's going to happen and really must happen. Right. It, it, it really it really must happen with cryptocurrency, right? I did a seminar on this, you know, last week at Singapore on Zoom. I had people from Shanghai and Singapore and um, Tokyo, and I had one from you know, New York, and, and they were all speaking. This. These guys don't know each other, but they're saying, yeah, what we're seeing is we see AI manifesting itself. We see blockchain manifesting itself. We see uh, crypto manifesting itself, and, and we see, you know, DeFi, right? Decentralized finance manifesting itself. A, B, C, D. They weren't all saying A, B, C, D, but they were all saying the same thing, that these technologies have come together. And as they have come together, technology changes behavior, right? It always does, right? Look, what, look at Zoom. Look at the internet. Look at, um, all, look at gaming. Look at what's happened with, you know, how adolescents are learning, right? It, it, and so this spills into everything. It spills into mental health. It spills into education. It spills into law. It spills into intellectual property development. It spills into property, everything, right? And so we're just at the very, very early innings, but we're getting everybody on board is coming to the same conclusion. And so what I see happening in the metaverse is very much of a, uh, of, of a, like, a like an arms race, right? And so you know, if you have uh, an e-currency, right, if you have the ECNY, that's capable of traveling along all of these lines that have been laid down by Alibaba and Tencent, and you own it through the central bank in 60 countries, maybe even more, maybe 100 countries, if including quite a few countries in Africa, you, you command the heights of the Silk Road. And this makes the West really uncomfortable because one of the critically important points of the metaverse is smart cities, right? The, the, the ability to, to create a dynamic, three-dimensional, digitized uh, world of, of utilities, traffic, uh, electricity, commerce, uh, you know, pedestrian traffic, uh, you know, all, everything, right? Civic life, right? Entertainment. And when you have that and you can do it along a central bank currency, man, you've got a really powerful thing here. And I think the Fed is making a terrible, terrible mistake. And I think the Bank of England, too, and just kind of, you know, hemming and hawing and, you know, why do we need this cryptocurrency and can't we just keep the pound and, you know, and what can't we just keep the dollar where it is? And, 
you know, and, and if you want the status quo, you're going to be in trouble. You have to get on board with this stuff because this is a world that's going to be, right? I mean, cryptocurrencies have already shown themselves to be a, a store of value. They have already shown themselves to be a means of exchange, right? Yeah. They've already shown themselves to be universally uh, recognized as value in 70 million people. 70 million is a really big number. And can you just, I might have this wrong, so it'd be interesting to discuss it. So is it an important concept of the metaverse and even you know, money existing in the metaverse as a cryptocurrency, et cetera, that there's no one sort of government or anything that, that controls everything. It's decentralized, essentially. Is that one of the important concepts? Or have I got that wrong? Um, well, I have had so many, because I, I wrote a book last year on, on, uh, on digitization of property uh, in greater, and I've, I've written a book on AI and quantum computing and another book I wrote on 5G in the last you know, four years. And I've, I've, I've spent so much time with, in central banks. And I just was with Randall Quarles in Los Angeles talking about this. And, you know, like uh, one of the top guys at the Fed who I spoke to in LA at the Milken conference said, well, all you're telling me is that you have a crypto thing, you have a cryptocurrency thing, but you have to have it uh, like glued to a bank account or glued to a um, credit card. And so to me, that's a redundant technology, right? Uh, it runs along its own rails. It has its own entity, its own value. Yet, in order for, for the Federal Reserve to see it as valuable, it has to be connected to a bank account or a credit card. Well, that's the weird thing about the Fed, that they think like that, that, that it is something which is, because it's fundamentally decentralized, it is a duplicative and therefore we can't allow it. And I just think that's, that's strange because... You know, I'm sure that a lot of people wanted to control the internet 20 years ago. I'm sure of it. And guess what? You, you really couldn't. But I, I think in the metaverse, I think we're going to have um, a fundamental thing that we should talk about is uh, renters versus owners on, the, uh, on a recognized, you know, uh, entity platform like Ethereum, which is universal. It is. It's, it's open, right? It's an open technology, very certainly, right? I own, right, I, I, I provably right, I own uh, my asset, whatever it is, a painting, a bottle of wine, um, you know, my, my idea, my own, you know, um, ability to, to trade anything, right? Um, if I'm on Meta in, in Facebook, I'm a squatter. I'm a renter. I'm renting Facebook's, you know, uh, metaverse, right? And so guess what happens to renters over time? I mean, if you're a middle-class couple and you plan on staying in one city and you, you have two kids, you know, you want to own a home. Otherwise, if, if you're going to be in a place for 20 years and you're a renter, you're just throwing your money away, right? I have traveled all over the world. I've lived in many cities. It's harder for me to be a real owner, right, of assets, except for like a vacation home or something, right? But renters are generally behind the eight ball. And that's the really huge, huge difference here between people who want to say, I don't care if a central bank is involved in this. I want my asset here on this thing that is recognized and has a large consensus to provably show that I own this asset. Um, central banks will get involved and they will try to corner the market. They always do, right? How would that, how would that end? Yeah, this is going to be a constant struggle. Um, how will that end? I'll give you an example, right? Uh, I think that I think that it's pretty clear, for instance, in the last, I think, three months that the U.S. has been going after Binance, mm -hmm. saying, you know, we don't like you 
and we want this country, you know, country X, which is an ally of America, to stop using Binance. And so those countries say, Binance has to close down in this country. But guess what? Guess how many of these people in those countries can trade Binance in six ways to Sunday? Yeah. So, so you're trying to... Stop saying this inevitable. Right. Yeah, you're trying to use your old, you know, rules of, of physical, um, physical uh, restriction of uh, your, your, your currency, right, with rules and laws and protocols that, you know, are for alliances that don't apply to the metaverse. And so, as, as you and I know, one of, one of the, the reasons for, for all of these cryptocurrencies, and, and let's say that like five or six cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, account for, I don't know, used to be 95, now it's, say, 70% of all trading, something like that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, they want to get around SWIFT. They want to get around you know, DTCC, right? The, the, the centralized trading in New York. They want to get around SWIFT, which is a political, politically controlled entity in New York. Um, and and so, so that is you know, very much a hallmark of, of this. It's a rebellion against um, central banks who let us all down by bailing out the banks and by screwing uh, the middle class. And so, so, so this re- rebellious, anarchistic, sort of Marxist approach to crypto is built into, into the, the nature of the beast. Um, and on the other hand, you, you clearly see central banks getting very nervous about that and either whistling you know, in the graveyard and saying, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, this thing is a fad, or they're trying to create a cryptocurrency to compete. And China has been very smart. China under, has understood this for eight years. China began looking at this in 2013. So China's central bank has a great understanding of this. And, and, and what, what, I guess, maybe what bothers me, I don't know if that's the, the right word. What, what I see as something which puzzles me is that they have decided to use the e-currency as a, as a state monopoly. And um, data, the collection of data at the center is part of that phenomenon. They're going to use this to get more control, essentially, because they control the metaverse or the money metaverse in China. Well, uh, you know, that's what someone said. In fact, it was a top guy at Binance. I was in a closed door session uh, about two months ago in Singapore, and it was a closed door session of mostly Chinese. I was the only like white person there, I think. And it was basically, it was in Mandarin, and it was all about sort of what, what is the future of all this stuff, right? And even the, one of the top guys from Binance said, look at, you know, um, like Hong Kong. I lived in Hong Kong off and on for like, you know, 16 years. Hong Kong finds itself on the sale of a thing inside Hong Kong that is a state monopoly. It's called land, right? Many governments fund themselves with the sale of land. Many governments fund themselves with sale of oil that comes out of the ground. What if you have a government that decides they want to fund themselves by the sale of data? And that data is extremely valuable. And so the creation of data exchanges is coming, right? And people are watching China very carefully and saying, you know what, there's been a very stealthy, very quiet uh, removal of the data away from these private companies toward a centralized data exchange. And so what if governments want to fund themselves, right, get a revenue source from a data? Wow. 
Okay. So it's less about control, more about revenue generation. Amen, brother. Yeah. And so I think that's where this is all going is, okay, well, if we break up Facebook, if you break up Google, if you break up, you know, um, um, you know, Amazon or Apple, because they're all clearly, I mean, it's ridiculously obvious that they are, you know, monopolies. And so uh, it's like the, that's the, the giant elephant in the room is that all these top five companies in the NASDAQ are runaway monopolies. What do you do uh, with the data, right? If you break them up, right? How does that work? Um, how do you tax it? These are all questions coming down the pike. And very few people have any answers for this, how this is going to work out. China's a model for this right now. We've got to watch it carefully. And so if we take it back to the money metaverse again, um, how, how is that? Can you give us examples about how that relates to finance? How is it going to reinvent sort of finance? Oh, so uh, in so many ways, for instance, right? I mean, so I, ha- I had a dinner with three or four people who made several hundred million dollars at my home in Singapore, and we were just chatting away about what's going on with them. And they're all in their like late 20s, early 30s. And, and a couple of insights they say is, you know, you think that I want to have a painting on my wall, right? That I, I can buy for, you know, $10 million, you know, whether it's like, you know, some, you know, whatever, $20 million. And I'm going to look at that painting when I'm alone, you know, with my cigar and my little, uh, you know, my, my decanter of, of brandy. Uh, in, in my velvet, you know, smoking jacket. Yeah. And if you come over to my house and you don't like it, I can just tell you to go to hell and leave, right? Well, how on earth is that any different from uh, something that I buy in the metaverse that I can look at? That, that's a digital piece of art that I know is provably mine, that I can pay, uh, you know, whether it's 10000 or $1 million. I have money to throw around. So don't tell me that buying something that I provably own on the metaverse that I can sell, I can keep it, I can sell it, I can trade it, uh, is, is any different. And by the way, I, I didn't know this, you know, one of them told me that a lot of people who have very expensive paintings, the painting in their home is a replica. Yeah, I've heard of that. Because it's very valuable. It's because they don't want to get it ripped or burned accidentally in a fire or something like that or stolen. And so... Um, so, so that's one example. The other example I would give you happens all the time where people are in competitions. This is all over the world now and people are making a lot of money. You have a guy in the Philippines who's 21 or even like 16 and he's making $50, $100 a day in a metaverse competitions. And if he buys you know, a, um, a pair of shoes or a weapon for his avatar and he has his avatar become more of a black belt or jump higher or whatever, and, and he could make, you know, uh, $140 instead of $85. And he's paying $20 for uh, something to improve his avatar. He's going to do it, you know? And, and so on and on and on and on. I mean, we, we're just barely getting, scratching the surface here. We're looking at, um, at all kinds of entertainment opportunities, education, uh, mental health is a big one. One of the ways that people begin to, to um, deal with PTSD, and I've done a lot of work in this. I do a lot of work in alcohol and drug addiction because there's a lot of that in my family, unfortunately. And you, when, you, when you're dealing with trauma, you, you tend to get a lot of success. If you animate the trauma and have a person look at the trauma in animated form, uh, because animated form removes... Right, especially with soldiers. You know, when I was in Los Angeles in, in the early 2000s, I did a lot of work at UCLA. I went back to school and got a degree in psychology counseling. And we did a lot of testing with veterans who were coming back from Afghanistan who were very traumatized. 
and and they were using a lot of the animation to write with, with early VR technology to let them replay the trauma without having them you know um, have it be so real that they can't get better that they get worse right yeah. animation does that and so there's a huge amount of potential in the world of mental health uh, on this law um, in the area of of you know radiology there's so many different applications of it. Um, that we're barely even scratching the surface, and 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 even even the VR itself is still very primitive to, compared to what we have. You know, I I went and I made an avatar of myself on um, what did I use? I use spatial uh, S P A T I A L. It's it's okay. You know, I, I've been teaching twenty years. I've been teaching graduate students twenty years. I want to have a more effective way of teaching them. But what's out there right now to make an avatar of me as a more effective teaching tool still very primitive. Very primitive. Yep. And that's all coming. In two years, if you don't have an avatar teaching, uh, it's going to be very goofy, I think, right? Because I, I can go from, from a campfire to a museum to a meadow to my apartment uh, in 90 minutes with my avatar, and I'm going to keep people wrapped. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, and so why shouldn't I do that? You know, so we're just barely starting to scratch the surface in terms of all the different. And, and I, I've been talking to private equity companies in the last month or so, and they, they've been heading down this road for, for several months in terms of understanding what's going on here. And so what, what we tell people is go in, go to go into Avalanche, go into some of these things. Use t- tuition money is 20 bucks, 50 bucks, $100 that, that, that you can make a lot of money off of or you can lose it all. Go in and play around. Go try it, right? If you go and try it, you're going to learn. And this is Avalanche, the cryptocurrency. Yeah, there's all these various systems you can use that are out there that are platforms where you can use various cryptocurrencies to buy these different types of non-fungible tokens, NFTs, right? Yeah, yeah I got you. NFT is something we should talk about, you know, because when I was at this dinner, with these rich dudes, you know, it was a, a spicy conversation, but I think generally we concluded that any um, physical object that is digitized can become a non-fungible token. We are looking at, you know, the possibility of digitizing trillions of dollars of wealth out there. And this includes, is this where you, you're sort of talking about the tokenization of property and you know, as NFTs and yeah. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. So you could own an NFT of a flat, which would actually give you ownership of the physical flat as well. That's right. And that's where, you know, th- there's going to have to be some advancements in like the law of um, intellectual property with NFTs. And so I've been talking to some lawyer friends and they're like, holy crap, we're just getting our head around like, you know, um, law tech and reg tech. And now you're throwing, you know, this metaverse thing at us. and We don't even have our head around like law tech and reg tech. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we, we got to go faster here. You know, th- this is, this has happened very, very suddenly that, and I think it's a coalescence of technology. I think that the, the speed of the, the presence of the metaverse is really a coalescence of the technologies I mentioned, ABCD, AI, blockchain, C, crypto, D, DeFi, all coming together at the same time. And as I said earlier on, technology changes behavior. And one of the fintech companies, is that, um, I think you've mentioned Circle before. Is that right? 
Yeah, and so so if you look at at um, you know the, the companies that, that are really in the middle of the traffic have very clever partnerships, right? Partnerships are the key here because you know you, you could try to go around buying up these companies, but these valuations are just completely insane right now. And, and so the people who are really smart are, are people who have their own platforms in their own right. And they go to somebody else and say, hey, you know, you control this part of the, like, it's railroad. We are building the railroad digitally in the way that the physical railroad was built in America in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, 1900s, early 1900s, right? Where, you know, it's all wiggledy-piggledy and, and, and messy and some, some of it's a monopoly and some of it's a, a oligopoly and some of it's owned by a state and then it's federal and then state and the railroad system was was a mess, but guess what? Chicago became the center of the rail industry for a lot of you know, interesting reasons, and so you have companies like Consensus, Circle, right, um, Visa, um, Coinbase. Um, I think you know another one that's trying to get there is PayPal, and so I want to know who's going to become the Chicago, right, of of of, of this traffic. Right, because Chicago is Chicago because of the railroad system. That's why Chicago's like the third, you know, major city in the country. And New York was was sort of a previous world of the sea, right? And you know, Philadelphia was a world of you know the sea, right? Of of, of the 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 canal system. And you know, some cities die, right? Ohio was like part of all the canal system. Well, a lot of Ohio died when the railroads got going, right? And, and then you had the airports, right? And Atlanta, you know, came to life, right? And so who's going to keep it going? Who's going to keep their, their mojo going, right? Chicago dominates air, the airlines and you know, the uh, rail, right? Um, and, and so you look at the companies who keep on evolving, right, with the new technologies. Visa is extremely clever at evolving. With partnerships, Circle, um, Coinbase is very clever at evolving. I, I want to see who's going to keep on evolving. J.P. Morgan is doing a great job. A lot of the other banks are falling behind. Goldman Sachs is doing a great job at evolving. Wells Fargo to a lesser extent, and and then of course, you know, I, I think right now one of the reasons why we're seeing this sort of you know choking uh, in the markets is because stuff has gotten so expensive that what's happening is public companies that are buying assets, if you're, like you're buying a railroad, instead of making your own railroad, you're buying something that can never make money. And so your stock's going down, right? You're, you're trying to expand the digital railroad and you're overpaying. And the market says, wait a minute here, you're never going to make money on that. So, so you're destroying, right? You're, you're destroying your, your equity value, right? Instead of increasing your equity value, and so people have started to come to that conclusion. And so if you're not doing this with partnerships, you're, and so you can see what happens with stock prices of some of these guys, when they start to, to buy things, um, they get in trouble. And you're seeing this with the equity valuations of IPOs, right? Paytm in India, Grab in Singapore in the last few weeks yeah. have been flops because the valuations are just out of sight. And so you want to be focusing on the, on the companies that, have a very valuable platform, and they say to somebody else, "Hey, you're good at this part of the you know railroad that we don't have. Why don't you come over and be a partner with us and help us extend our platform?" 
And the one company which does that better than anybody else in the world right now is Visa. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always like a little bit struck. You know, Facebook is building out its own thing internally, which is fine. But Facebook has such a, a terrible, terrible public relations problem. And then Visa is way more present. Visa has a billion customers, right, all over the world, in every country in the world, right? An awesome, you know, uh, network. And, and so Visa could very much play a big role in the metaverse if it played its cards right. Um, you know, but but Visa is doing things very, very quietly. Amazon always does things very quietly, has a very good reputation. I, I just think that uh, Facebook is doing a very poor job at trying to improve its reputation after all of this like disastrous disclosures of all kinds of behavior. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of the, the what you see as the, the companies that, that might have the biggest uh, potential to win from this new trend, the money metaverse, um, you've mentioned Meta, Facebook, um, and uh, Tencent from China, uh, Coinbase. Uh, are there other companies that you see are set up well to sort of benefit from this, this trend? Yeah, and so um, so if you look at, at, at if, we, if we go down some of the the, um, the other uh, usual suspects, the book that I did was very much focusing on on the large caps because we got to focus on those those guys. Those guys are the New York and the Chicago and the LA and the Atlanta and you know the Philadelphia right of of this new digital railroad right. They're going to dominate. Um, I think uh, PayPal is exceptionally um, nimble mm -hmm. at, uh, at, at, at evolving. And so, you know, do, do not count them out. Um, I think Square as well, but Square, um, again, Square, I think, you know, um, got into a valuation that was just way, way ahead of itself. And so it's kind of going through a digestion uh, process. The, the companies that really bother me, we can talk about that in a minute too, the companies that really bother me are the guys that sort of came along late in the game and sort of had late listings in like 2019, 2020, and they built up stuff that was like these fancy schmancy words, you know, these um, telematics and artificial intelligence that wasn't artificial intelligence at all, uh, especially in the area of the insure tech. Mm -hmm. And so you have companies like whatever, uh, Metro Mile and Lemonade and Oscar right? Super sexy companies who, you know, stocks have been cratering. And I've been very negative on them because I just think they don't have a, you know, commanding technology. Their stuff is off the shelf. They don't have sort of an indigenous technological culture, right? They're buying off the shelf, white label stuff. And a lot of it's, they're not building internally, right? And, and Facebook is going to throw $10 billion at this. And so, yeah. So, so some of the sexy stuff that, that was late 19, you know, 20, even early 21 is, I, I worry about it because it, it was supposed to offer so much promise. And that's especially in the area of InsurTech. And they are burning money. They're going through their capital. And I just, I worry that they don't have the, the internal wherewithal, the internal technological, like finesse and capability of evolution. Mm -hmm. that will allow them to get to the next level. And, and so, for instance, if you look at Grab, Grab is losing like a billion dollars a quarter or something like that. Um, and they're, they're going up against C, right? So C is like the largest gaming company in Asia, right? They're, they're in Singapore, right? C has $3 billion in cash, right? Wow. If anybody's going to go into the, the, the sort of the finance 
e-commerce um, metaverse and succeed, C is going to in Southeast Asia. Right? Southeast Asia's got 600 million people. And so I think C is another one to watch, right? Which is, um, which is um, got, it's got a, it's got a, a, a dual a listing. Yeah. So you have like pay in the air and, and grab and C going at each other uh, in Southeast Asia for this 600 million uh, young person market, right? It's a really young demographic. It's great, right? Um, but, but you got to be careful because the, the, the companies that have got a natural advantage by gaming are the ones that are going to have a, it's going to be, this is a kind of a natural, the metaverse is a natural phenomenon for them, right? Yeah. So Tencent, you know, is fundamentally a gaming company. C is fundamentally a gaming company, right? So it's really interesting to see how these guys may have an easier time sort of moving into a finance, education, legal, mental health, you know, world of metaverse than a finance company that's going to have to go in the other direction and try to understand, you know, the, the ins and outs of three-dimensionality. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. But, but I, I think the best analogy is hyperspace, HSTP. This is yes. the hyperspace protocol versus, versus a hypertext protocol. And what are the tech companies that are going to sort of power these, you know, all the AI and everything related to the metaverse, the infrastructure behind it? What companies are going to sort of lead in that area? Right, that's right, that's right. And so, so what, what we have a uh, we have a, uh, a metaverse portfolio for our clients, and we have done this uh, a couple of weeks ago. I, I think that if we look at sort of uh, if we dig down and we look at um, sort of the individual companies, I think you've got companies that, uh, that are uh, like Qualcomm, I think is, is, is certainly uh, one of them. Qualcomm, NVIDIA, perhaps. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. NVIDIA for sure. Now, NVIDIA, we, we, yeah, part of my seminar that we did on NVIDIA, it's interesting. NVIDIA, you know, is, is a different story because we actually spent, you know, an hour and a half and, and I did a seminar with like 450 people. And in that seminar, we basically looked at, at Mark Zuckerberg's articulation of the metaverse. And then we looked at the CEO of NVIDIA's articulation of the metaverse. And, and, and these are really interesting because you asked earlier, how is this going to coalesce and who's going to own what? Well, NVIDIA's metaverse is all about the three-dimensionality and using all of this technology to basically build parallel worlds in logistics mm -hmm. and the factory. And Facebook's world is a world where... Uh, you are talking about building a three-dimensionality uh, with friends on just about anything, right? Whether you're creating three-dimensional digital parties, uh, home uh, entertainment with your family members, um, you know, all different ways that you can reinvent how you interact with people by spending and playing around and creating games and, and sharing that with other people. And so, so that's a great point. And so, so NVIDIA's stuff, I think, is, is way more fascinating. Uh, in fact, you know, it was interesting because I asked everybody afterwards of like 400 people, what do you think of the guy who was expressing himself um, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the NVIDIA metaverse presentation? And they were like, he's great. And, and uh, he did a good job acting. And I said, that was an avatar. That was not even a human being. They didn't even guess the guy was an avatar. 
So this is what's going on here in terms of um, in terms of um, uh, of the kind of precision. And you know, when I made my own avatar, it, you know, like a, a couple of months ago, it, 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 it was kind of lame and silly. And I thought, this is stupid. This is going to be a distraction rather than a addition to what's going on. So that's two great examples where. You know, one metaverse could be, you know, a metaverse dominated by NVIDIA, which has everything to do with logistics. Another one dominated by Facebook, which has everything to do with, you know, home entertainment. And, and so, so, you know, very different creatures, right? Yeah. yeah. So the other ones, um, AMD, Logitech, Electronic Arts, um, Intel, um, uh, HP, uh, NVIDIA, as you mentioned, Lenovo. Acer and Qualcomm are the stocks that we pointed out are going to be really ones to watch. And so that's part of our few of like 15 stocks that are part of our metaverse portfolio for our clients. Amazing. Well, Paul, thanks so much for your time uh, to, to discuss the, the money metaverse is obviously something that people really need to dig into. And as you said, explore themselves and, uh, you know, spend some money trying, trying to understand this nascent industry at the moment because you know, there's a lot more to come. Um, any sort of final things you'd like to say to our audience about your, you know, obviously your books out, where can they find it? Where can they get more information? Yeah, so, so, so the book is called, the real title of the book is uh, Money Metaverse, How Crypto is Reinventing Finance and Property and Unlocking Value via Tokenization. It's on Amazon and Kindle. And it was done in conjunction with uh, where I teach at Singapore University of Social Sciences and uh, a centralized, pretty high-powered group of people in Singapore who do the uh, are part of the Global FinTech Institute, which is a lot of the center of the thinking on blockchain for the Singapore government. And I'm, I'm involved with that. Amazing. And where can people go to follow? Are you on Twitter? And, and can they follow sort of your insights? Or is there a newsletter you they seem to subscribe to? Yeah. Well, yeah. Research.com is my website. And... Um, I'm on LinkedIn and, and get a hold of me. Amazing. Well, again, thanks, Paul. Okay, you're a star. Thank you. Great questions and love your follow-up. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Have a good rest of the day. Yeah, have a great day. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.